0: Waves in the Finiverse, live from Hong Kong Fintech Week. So in the same way that you know we have in law ways in which you can protect our physical property, currently in law you don't have a way to protect your digital property. That's why blockchain is so important, because now data becomes a public good, which means that data is now stored in an immutable fashion, which means that my ownership of something digital can now be not just verified, but truly be made and claimed to be mine. Who are perhaps the biggest content creators in the world? They are our teachers. So they have a very valuable job. But then think about how much they get paid. Actually, very little. We're taking the content that teachers have created. We're turning them basically into non-fungible tokens. You can now buy ownership and IP rights of this particular content. And you then have the ability to monetize it if you wish.
1: Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse, I'm Walter Jennings, the host of a podcast brought to you by Finiverse. We're talking with the wave makers that are creating ripples, waves and tsunamis across finance, crypto, fintech, Web3 and beyond. Listen weekly to hear the change makers talk firsthand about their experiences in this dynamic industry. (laughs) Joining us in the booth is Yat Tsui, the co-founder and executive chairman of Anamoco Brands. So, Yat, welcome to Waves in the Finiverse.
0: Thank you for having me. It's exciting. Yeah.
1: yeah, really appreciate having you here. We're coming to you from Hong Kong Fintech Week. And look, Yat Tsui, a lot of folks know about Anamoco Brands, but I just want to understand a little bit more your personal story. I understand you grew up in Austria and studied music. How did that set you up for a life of uh, digital assets and NFTs?
0: Well, I think uh, my parents are musicians, particularly my mom. She was first an opera singer and then she was an opera director. She moved to Vienna really in the 60s and then obviously in the 70s was studying music. That's, you know, and as any any good Asian kid will attest to. If the parents wish you to do something, then I guess that's what you do. Asian tiger parenting, it's all true. So that's why I studied music. But I think the one thing that really sort of gave me uh, the, I guess, the passion for what I'm doing right now is actually, you know, and again, back then, I didn't realize that that would be the case. My mom really struggled as an artist, as a creator. And I think when we look at, for instance, what non-fungible tokens can do for the creator economy has given me a level of empathy. Uh, I never ended up going into the music profession because I just realized how difficult it is for someone who has a passion in the uh, the arts, but is constantly being taken advantage of. Um, The other thing is that my mom used to work in you know, uh, parts of Eastern Germany, particularly in Berlin at the Komische Oper, And, you know, for those who may remember, if they're old enough, uh, that was truly in that sort of a communist era in the Eastern side of Berlin. And, you know, she would cross Checkpoint Charlie and so on, and I would see her there. And I really saw a different world as well. So it introduced me to a completely different kind of societal structure, having come from sort of a social democracy going into communism. And then eventually through the work I ended up doing at Atari and so on, moving me to America where I was exposed to capitalism and then to Hong Kong, where it's basically Uber capitalism. You know, I guess all of these experiences helped shape our thinking around sort of what the metaverse should be today with digital property rights. Um, you know, because of the fact that I grew up in Vienna and I was writing composition software, I used a pre-internet service called CompuServe and I was discovered basically ultimately by you know people who liked what I wrote and gave me that opportunity. And maybe the other lesson was, that it didn't matter that I was a kid at the time, I was like maybe 13 or 14 years old, um, or that I was a minority growing up in Austria. It just didn't matter. All that mattered was in the virtual context that I knew how to do something that maybe was valuable to the community at large, and that gave me that opportunity. So I think really since the 80s, I've always been attracted to you know the internet as it were, or you know, the metaverse as we may call it today.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm very interested in the, the hero's journey. What was the spark that led to the creation of Animoca Brands?
0: Well, Animoca Brands was originally incubated in some ways, basically, you could say, through um, through Outplays, and it spun out, you could say, in uh, what was now known as uh, the original Animoca in 2011, actually, quite some time ago, uh, and then eventually spun out from that into what is now known as Animoca Brands um, l- through a listing in Australia before we basically sort of uh, went you know, I guess quasi-private again through through not being a public but but uh, but unlisted entity, uh, and the spark really was around mobile gaming. Right? When we saw what hap- what mobile phones would, were going to do back in two thousand and ten, we felt that actually this was a new way in which people would engage, um, and and sort of gaming, which was already a growing industry, would explode. And as a result, it did through through basically the smartphone. But really, I think the spark of Animoca Brands was the beginning of when we discovered CryptoKitties. Um, Actually, our studio in Vancouver, a company called Fuel Powered, actually was involved in building it. And it was actually a company that we had just about finished acquiring. And when we saw what they were building with CryptoKitties and then it launched to this incredible sensation, we were fascinated with what it could do. And we felt actually this is truly the way in which you can own our digital assets online for the first time, truly. And we didn't come at it from the financial lens. We came at it from the lens of ownership, from the ownership of your culture. Because before, if you remember, crypto was generally something that was very financial in nature, right? With Bitcoin, it started in 2009. You know, for basically, you could say, you know, 10 years going, everyone was looking at the world of crypto entirely from a Wall Street lens. But actually with CryptoKitties, it now became possible to look at it from the perspective of a cultural lens, of an identity lens, you know, through non-fungible tokens. That fascinated us because, you know, as gamers, we felt we should own our assets anyway. But if we play a game today, we don't own anything. So, you know, this was a way in which you could do that. And we had then the freedom to transact and free sort of sort of freedom to do all sorts of economic activities that we would not normally be able to do in in-game assets. So that's how we got involved in this. And we went all in. And in 2018, we decided this is, you know, we, we believe this to be the future of everything, not just, you know, the future of games, but the future basically of everything um, and went heavily into it, made over 300 investments to date. Our most high profile companies that you might know are companies like Sandbox, but of course, OpenSea is part of the family. Axie Infinity, Dapra Labs, Wax, Decentraland, and you know, a whole host of other sort of significant companies in the space have all emerged from you know our support and uh, and and uh, group activity and an investment starting from 2018.
1: Now it sounds like your early days being found on CompuServe, uh, reaching out and finding CryptoKitties, and suddenly connecting the user, uh, the developer, with the end product. Great. Okay. Um, Specifically, you mentioned earlier Sandblock and Decentraland. Um, Talk a bit about the concept of virtual land ownership and how you see that evolving.
0: Well, I mean, if you think of generally the lens of ownership, what does ownership really mean to us as humans? Before we even talk about sort of what is land ownership? Because the fascinating thing that the way we think of it is that the value and the meaning to our ownership is entirely virtual and construct. For instance, when you think about the choice of car you buy, the shirts you buy, or even the shoes you buy, you're making a conscious decision to buy one fashion item over the other. If it was purely for its utility, the shoes would maybe only have the same color, and they should only have one function, which is to walk. But the same is for cars. You know, the utility of a car is to take us from point A to point B. But actually, when you make the purchase of a car, how much of the decision process of its utility of the car comes into why you purchase it? And the short answer is almost none. We all know that the car can take us from point to point, but we buy it because we like the seats or we like what our friends say, or we like it that it's maybe carbon neutral, or that it's energy friendly, or that it's battery powered, or the fact that it's from Mercedes, or that it's maybe a Rolls Royce, or it says something about status. All of these are entirely virtual, if you think about it. These are fictions that we as humans embellish and love because it says a piece about of who we are. So then we go to virtual land, it's the same thing. Virtual land is just basically taking that 99% to 100%. But the meaning and the purpose of it is 100% actually as significant to us as we purchase something physical. Like, you know, I live in Hong Kong. Why would you not purchase a land somewhere in, you know, further away where you have a nice big house and you don't have to, you know, why do you want to live in mid-levels, right? Why do you want to live in a sort of what may be a smaller place? Because the district, the society, the community, you know, speaks of the value I wish to be associated with or the community I wish to be a part of, that is also virtual in construct, right? It's not actually the utility in and of itself. So when you buy land in Sandbox, for instance, uh, you know, land around Snoop Dogg is more valuable than land somewhere else. Again, why is that? It's not because, you know, you know one block of land is further away, uh, sort of is, is, is more valuable than the other, just in its pure essence, right? That's like saying Earth is more valuable from one country to another. It isn't but it's actually the location, the community, the network effects that give it value. In the same way that we choose to think that and believe that you know, living in mid-levels is more valuable than living somewhere else in Hong Kong, actually the same is true in the metaverse, right? It's about the community that's there. It's about the v- sort of virtual value that is constructed that speaks to us as, as, as members of society. From innovators to investors, get inside the minds of the industry's top leaders in finance, fintech, crypto, web3, and beyond. Get ready to ride the next wave. This is Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast, live from Hong Kong fintech week. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Yatsui, Animoca Brands has built a portfolio of some 350 different three hundred eighty. 380, there you go, companies and projects. Uh, What is the ecosystem you're building and what's your core mission?
0: The core mission is to deliver true digital property rights. Right now, digital property rights exist more as a contract right. Um, So in the same way that we have in law ways in which you can protect a physical property, currently in law, you don't have a way to protect your digital property in the same way. However, it was hard to do so because the digital property would normally be inside a private database which means that the company who basically owns the data actually has say and sway over what it does. That's why blockchain is so important, because now data becomes a public good, which means that data is now stored in an immutable fashion, which means that my ownership of something digital can now be not just verified, but truly be made and claimed to be mine. And so that's really the mission. And so everything we invest in really has two core purposes, outside of, of course, the fact that we want the founders to be good and everything, and, and that we you know, it has to be a sound business and has, has prospects, is the fact that it has to, one, uh, assist in the development and growth of non-fungible tokens, right? Meaning as digital property, and also has to um, add to the network effect of NFTs. So, for instance, the marketplace is a good example because a marketplace is a way in which your NFTs have you know, utility, in which it could be, you know, both discovered and also, you know, perhaps exchanged for value or traded by someone else. But you know, that's not something that we necessarily do as a game company. But we invest in those businesses because it helps grow the entire ecosystem. We think of the metaverse as the sort of um, sort of uh, expansion and growth of literally new economies when we think of sandbox we don't measure it based on you know uh, you know it's p l like a, like a corporate we do of course have to look at the sustainability we look at it at the g- economic activity like a GDP how many people are employed how, how much growth do we see in terms of the business um, in and of itself in terms of you know economic activity that was generated and then from that we obviously take a kind of quasi tax and from that we grow the business in a sustainable fashion. So it is almost like nation building. Uh, I wanna ask um, uh, if your chief risk
1: officer gets any sleep lately. It's been a a market gyrations this year have caused the valuations of digital assets to fluctuate significantly. Uh, Does this heavy weighting in virtual um, leave you potentially exposed? Uh, How do you balance out the risk?
0: Well, from our perspective, we're generally all in in that space. The good thing about us is that we don't have leverage. But I think one of the reasons why a lot of companies in the past have gotten into trouble isn't the fact that crypto assets have fallen. I mean, you know, asset values have fallen broadly in the market, not just related just to digital assets. The reason why they got into trouble is because they were leveraged. Uh, And if you don't have leverage, then generally speaking, the prices are a momentary fluctuation as to the long-term trend where we think the business will go. Remember where Bitcoin and Ethereum was four years ago. Ethereum was floating in the low hundreds, and Bitcoin was three thousand dollars or less. Right, so it's all relative to that lens. Right, so again, when you look at it from economic activity, from growth in the space, you know, if you take a ten-year lens, you're fine. If you're basically thinking about just the next six months, okay. But the next six months, those are traders, those are speculators, and that's a different market. And I know there's a lot of businesses that focus on those, but that's not our focus. And as a result, we're not too concerned about that because we're more thinking about where is the where is this world, the metaverse, Web three going? Really in the future as proper as opposed to shorter.
1: Okay, well then let's open up that longer-term lens and look into a field that you've recently entered, which is education. Tell me about your ambitions in education and how that fits into the overall portfolio.
0: So non-fungible tokens have this incredible power to create network effects and capital formation in content-related assets. When you think about the classic Web 2 example, content wasn't an asset. Content was something that you consumed. Right? like the way we consume music, or we compute sort of games, for instance. But with NFTs, content now becomes an asset, which, like I mentioned in the last example, then becomes a platform of growth in and of itself. So we're doing the same with education. Who are perhaps the biggest content creators in the world? They are our teachers. Who are perhaps the most valuable sort of content creators to our society? They're probably our teachers. We spend more time, our children spend more time with teachers, probably at least in the working, sort of in the working week than with their parents at home, if you think about it, right? So they have a very valuable job, but then think about how much they get paid, actually very little, relatively speaking. So that's the issue we have right now. But one of the reasons why they get paid relatively little is because the content they produce, even though they are societally very valuable, actually isn't valued in a financial sense. So what's financially valuable? Or well, things like real estate, for instance, or the ownership of their assets, or for instance, art or so on, right? Because of the fact that they allow for capital formation. So this is the same thing that we're now trying to do with, with education. We're taking the content that teachers have created, we're turning them basically into non-fungible tokens in what we call publisher NFTs. And it means that you now, whether you're a parent or whether you're another teacher, or whether you're a school, you can now buy ownership and IP rights of this particular content. And you then have the ability to monetize it if you wish. Now, what happens is this kind of content already makes money. So it's something like, almost think of it as rent. When you buy a house, right? You're not buying it based on one times rent. You're buying it based on multiple years of potential, you know, rent potential that you can maybe enhance and, and put work and make it better. And we're doing the same with education. A teacher that makes $1,000 a year in their content could potentially sell their assets for maybe ten dollars or $20,000 in the same way that we've seen sort of, you know, art really appreciate for, you know, NFT artists, for instance. And if we can make that happen, then we can get a lot of capital flowing into the right areas of society, which is our teachers. And, you know, if they get more money, not only do they live a better life, they can reinvest back into the areas of learning and teaching and get better resources. So we think and we hope, as it has done with artists and gaming, that it creates the right incentive structure where money and value can flow actually to the participants who most deserve it.
1: I think for anyone who has never developed curriculum, you don't understand the hard yards that go into it. I developed a a three-day course on creative thinking, which I taught in the Gulf countries. Um, and teaching um, creativity to Arab speakers was very um, uh, challenging culturally and linguistically, but that's valuable cu- uh,
0: curriculum. Absolutely. There is value to that, and it's not never been fully appreciated. And I think hopefully with the metaverse and Web3, we can change that. Now, um, blockchain
1: gaming and the metaverse, um, as well as user-generated content and the potential to play to earn or party to earn. Um, What are the um, longer-term opportunities in this market for you?
0: The paradigm is ownership. Because of ownership, you can have play and earn or play to earn. Without ownership, you can't do that. For instance, one of our portfolio companies, Axie Infinity, it grew because someone ended up creating an Uber-like service, which then created another company, which was also one of our portfolios, called YGG. And they basically Provided a way in which people who owned these axes, which are basically these gaming assets, that you could then basically give to people in the Philippines who then used them, and they shared the revenue that they were earning from the game, and gave them a living wage. And this was very critical. Actually, millions of people in the Philippines who don't normally have access to the ability to have a credit card or to have, uh, you know, um, you know, a, uh, a bank account, actually ended up having a crypto wallet as a result, and they became financially included. Which is, you know, one of those amazing stories that people don't fully appreciate. Because, of course, living in a place like Hong Kong, for instance, we all have the benefit of having a bank account and we all can have a credit card for the most part. Therefore, you know, why does it seem valuable? But for these developing places, actually, it's absolutely critical because it's not financially viable to provide a traditional banking service in those places. But, you know, talking about the opportunity spectrum, I think a lot of people are confused about sort of play to earn or play and earn because they look at the space and they say, well, you know, the game is free. Where is money being made? Well, let's talk some facts. The gaming industry last year was a $200 billion plus industry and is rising, right? Of that, basically, 30% goes to platform fees. Of, on top of that, um, you know, over $100 billion basically goes into advertising, right? You know, basically, which goes to the benefits of companies like Facebook, Apple, Google, and all those guys. How much of that $100 billion that the industry basically spends on promoting the games actually goes back into the game industry? The gamer doesn't get the benefit, right? The uh, The game studio doesn't get the benefit, right? So when you add it all up, It's a highly, highly extractive tax ultimately in the form of advertising costs, in the form basically of platform fees. What play to earn actually does with ownership paradigm is take that value that is going to these platforms and give it back into the ecosystem. Because instead of paying Apple and Facebook, you're basically effectively paying the players for that time and attention. That value then actually will more likely go back into the ecosystem because if you're a gamer and you're deriving value from the game, what are the chances that you're reinvesting it into the game economy? much, much higher, because you certainly know that Apple, Facebook, and Google are probably not going to put anything back into it because that's not their business model, right? So I think we're basically sort of changing the face of, I guess in this case, capitalism inside these games as a structure. Games are already a very financial system in terms of what it does for game studios and the platforms that benefit from it. It's just that the value isn't fairly distributed, and Web3 and the metaverse can change that. Uh, Yeah, I'm interested
1: to uh, look forward. Um, This week we've seen uh, Elon Musk take over Twitter. Um, We've uh, seen Mark Zuckerberg changing Facebook to Meta. Um, Why don't we have a blockchain social media yet? Um, And uh, what are the opportunities uh, in social for Animoca.
0: I think um, we've made a number of investments in the space uh, to try to sort of spur on this idea of social in the Metaverse. So I think it's beginning. Remember, social has multiple sort of um, experiences. Social doesn't necessarily need to look exactly like Facebook, right? I mean, an experience like Sandbox is very social in and of itself. A blockchain game is very social in and of itself. I think the classical way of thinking in the Web2 way was that there should be sort of you know, one dominant partner, that there should be one giant company that owns it all. But the way we think of Web3 is actually, that may not be the most healthiest experience. We want to have more fragmented and more distributed systems. They all talk to each other because they're all on chain, but one difference, now we can actually build on top of our experiences. Today, you can build these micro experiences through WhatsApp group and Facebook groups, for instance, You know, but that's actually a very imperfect way of actually creating a close relationship, a close-knit relationship with your thousand true fans. Whereas in blockchain, you can actually build it very much in a custom manner Uh, But you're still connected. Remember, your wallet is open to the world. You know, everyone can come and conduct business with you freely. You're not in a walled garden. I don't have to go to a platform to do business with you. I just have to basically go directly to you because you basically happen to be on-chain. Okay. Um,
1: And do you think there are any checks and balances that need to be put in place
0: to ensure that Web3 and blockchain remain a force for good? Well, I mean, I think, you know, what Hong Kong is doing right now, basically, with their virtual assets policy and, and look, looking at positive ways to regulate is very positive, I think. You know, we've always welcomed this idea that there should be some form of you know, positive regulation. But there's a fine line between sort of over-regulation that sort of really sort of cripples uh, an industry or positive regulation that gives clarity into a market, that makes it clear w- what the rules are. One of the problems about many places in the world, and to a certain extent Hong Kong as well, is that there wasn't clarity as to what is and isn't possible. And therefore, everyone's operating in these sort of you know, let's call it shades of gray, and they don't know what they're doing is right or not, which has in the past driven a lot of companies away from Hong Kong, even though Hong Kong has been one of the earliest places around it, because you know, fintech, financial systems, that's just you know Hong Kong. They know this space so well, right? And I think Hong Kong realizes this, which is why they've gone out and announced this sort of virtual asset policy. So we're very positive about this development here. Um, you know, regulation is 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 an ally, really, if you think about it in the right way. Um, but of course, in the past. People were worried about it. But the worry doesn't come from the fact that the regulation couldn't be positive. The worry comes from the fact that in the past, the people who regulated didn't understand the space. But again, I would say, especially what we see Hong Kong do, showing leadership in the space, I think it's very exciting and we are very optimistic.
1: Now, yeah, so we have a, a, a tradition in our podcast, ask people if they could... Uh, bring a song with them in the Finiverse, what music would they want to accompany them?
0: Well, I guess I have a classical music background. So I think the way that I think of the space we're in this moment, I think the Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner comes to mind. It has the right drama. It has the right attention. It also has the right sense of sort of excitement and growth that certainly we feel here as an industry. So I would say that would be my song.
1: And um, finally, um, what's next for you and Anamoco? And um, what can we look forward to
0: in uh, the coming year? Well, we continue to build out the metaverse, obviously. We will continue to make investments in the space. Hong Kong is our home and our headquarters. We're really proud to sort of be here. You should expect us to continue to sort of particularly grow in areas of education, but also broadly. You know, I think if you think of, for instance, uh, we have new metaverses coming out, like what we're doing with Life Beyond, uh, with AAA gaming experiences like with Phantom Galaxies, Right. So you know, um, you know everything we're doing in this space is to try to further and grow, basically Web three.
1: Well, I'll look forward to podcasting in the metaverse one day with you soon. See you in the sandbox. See you soon. Thank you so much, Yatsui, co-founder and executive chairman of Animoco Brands, and guest here on Waves in the Finiverse.
0: This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.